Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is The Chris O Show with your host, Chris O. And today I have an amazing guest with me, a very well-spoken gentleman who I've known for a few years and got the pleasure of noting, knowing through Friends of the Muskoka Watershed, uh, Dr. Norman Yen. Dr. Yen, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I'll, I might just say Norman, so don't think that it's a, it's not offensive to, to Norman. That Norman, is, Norman is completely fine. If you want to call me Dr. Something, only my mom called me Dr. Yan. <laughs> my wife calls me Dr. Normie Poo. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, we have a great thing to talk about today. It's something you and I spoke about one time. Um, we were doing an Ash Muskoka drive for one of, for the Ash Muskoka project. We're not talking about that today, but we're talking about Daphnia, this tiny uh, water flea, as as uh, they're known. And uh, what, like, obviously, I just said, what are Daphnia? But in, in a little more complex way, what are Daphnia? Well, thank you for asking. Everyone, hold up your thumb and look at it. <clears throat> and you can get about 10 Daphnia head to tail across your thumbnail. So they are small. They're about a millimeter or maybe at most two millimeters in size. But they're really, really important, especially for people that live up here in Muskoka, where we all value our lakes. So Daphnia, little Daphnia and her cousins uh, keep our legs clean. The entire volume of Lake Vernon out behind your head here, Chris, is filtered and cleaned by the little water fleas in the lake like Daphnia every 10 days or so all summer. Okay. So if they do badly, then our legs go to pot. Ah, gotcha. Now, the, the many things about them are neat, so it's hard to imagine an animal, 10 of which you could get lined up across your thumbnail, <laughs> are a whole animal. So they're, they're called water fleas, but they're actually cl more closely related to lobster than to mosquitoes. Gotcha. They're actually like a little crustacean. Uh, and um, so like crustacea, they have a little carapace on you know, that's a little crusty. That's mm -hmm. why they're called crustaceans. And um, what can I say about Daphnia? So she's a good, they're mainly women. You know, they've given up on men as kind of a bad idea. So in the spring, let's take you through the summer in a, in a mother Daphnia's life. So when, okay. the, when the ice comes off, um, the eggs hatch. They have little eggs, like yep. little tiny chickens. They hatch out of the bottom. And every single one of them is a girl. And everyone is different. And all summer, mothers produce daughters, produce daughters, uh, every 10 days or so as the water warms up. And come late September or October, a wise grandmother, Daphnia, decides there's a, little, there's, there's a need for a little variety out there in the gene pool and a little fun for her daughters. And she makes the decision that a bunch of her grandchildren will be boys. Okay. That's a decision a grandmother makes, inducing uh, a genetic change in her daughters so that some of her daughter's kids will be men. Interesting. And then uh, it's a great strategy in a way because you never know when you only live as they do typically a week or so. Yes. Next spring is a long time away and things may be very different. And so it'd be nice to have some variety in what's emerging out of the sediments. So, yes. so the only way to get variety is sex. <laughs> and so if she produces males, 
and then there's a little sex happen usually in October mm-hmm. and uh, and all those eggs that are produced at that time of year are called resting eggs and they sink to the bottom okay and there's something really neat about those resting eggs most of them will hatch in the spring yes and like any good mother um, those eggs are full of yolk and um, full of nutrition yes. and everything the babies need to develop in the eggs and then survive for a couple of days okay it actually has a fancy name. It's called the maternal lipid investment. Maternal lipid, like fat, yes. investment. So in the spring when they hatch out, they carry a little bit of their mother's yolk still. So they actually don't have to eat for a couple of days. Interesting. And uh, in the spring. So um, what's happening? So I want to give you a little more insight about this animal that's only a millimeter long. They're a complete animal uh, in every way. Yes. And they see better than us. Um, they have a brain, they have organs, they have six specialized legs that filter um, algae out of the water. Um, uh, Everyone has probably heard of diatomaceous earth that they can put in their garden. It's Daphnia that produced Mm. that diatomaceous earth because as they're feeding, they're crushing diatoms, uh, which are, it's like, okay, picture you're sitting down to dinner on a Friday night and your mother puts out a spinach salad, but it's in a glass bowl that's completely sealed. And you have to eat your way through the glass bowl to get out the (laughs) spinach. That's what Daphnia do with diatoms. They crush up diatoms, which are little glass shells, to get the living green algae and the chlorophyll out of the middle that they then eat. So there's a constant rain, if you think of it as a pitter-patter of little crushed diatom shells sinking to the bottom of lakes okay. uh, that all the Daphnia are producing. So their life is kind of tough in that way. You know, they've got yeah, a, yeah. So this animal that's a millimeter long has crushing mandibles, um, and straining legs that filter out only the good algae. Yes. And um, and pass it up to their mouth where they crush it and tear it apart. The glass fragments filtered out of their brood pouch to the bottom. And they do this by sucking water in. They have, um, their body has two kind of uh, pouches in it. Yes. A brood pouch on their back that I'll talk about in a sec because they're good mothers that look after their babies. <laughs> And another feeding pouch on the front end. So they move their legs forward, suck water in. They have combs. Every leg has a different purpose. They have six pairs of legs. Yes. And legs four and five are the filtering combs. And that filters all the algae out. They pass it to the... Uh, up to their mouth where they have three tearing mandibles and two crushing plates. Um, and then that's how they eat. And Interesting. If now they're transparent. <clears throat> because a main difference between lakes and forests is there's no trees to hide behind. So if you're if you're out in the water column and you're smaller than the things that want to eat you, it helps to be transparent. Yes. So they're transparent pretty well, uh, except for their eye. You can't have a transparent eye no. or you don't see anything. So they have a black eye that all the fish orient at. I'm kind of wandering around here. That's okay. And, um, That's fine. And so... Um, uh, a typical daphnium will filter about 30 milliliters of water a day free of algae. Just one? One. And there's typically uh, five to ten of them in every liter of water, and then another hundred of her cousins. 
And so the result of that is that in a lake like Lake Vernon, there's a thousand times more Daphne and her cousins in Lake Vernon than people on Earth. In Lake Muskoka, 10,000 times That's more Daphne and her cousins than people on Earth. So they're small, but collectively they're mighty. Yes. And they keep our lakes clean. So they keep our legs clean and they feed the fish or things above them. Yes. So one other thing before we talk about what can go wrong if they're not there to keep the legs clean. Yeah, that'll be that'll and, be in the second part. Okay, and then we can uh, we'll talk about that. The other thing I want to point out is that they're good mothers. And so <laughs> they're good mothers. This I love little, it. This little animal that's a millimeter long, you know, it has it carry she carries her babies, all girls, yes, on her back. In what's called a brood pouch. Okay. And it's kind of sealed, but there's still various dangers. There are other animals that can open up her brood pouch and crawl in. Oh. uh, And actually eat. They're called brood predators. They can actually eat the eggs. And I don't like to think about that. It's kind of horror movie (laughs) stuff. But the main problem with carrying your eggs, uh, they have all the yolk, they have everything they need to develop in your back, is that it's a sealed... It's a sealed space. Yes. And so it can go anaerobic. It can lose oxygen, and that okay. would kill the eggs. So, um, but like any good mother, they're aware of that. Um, I'm being a bit teleological, but they're aware of it. So many times a second, when they're sucking uh, fresh water from the lake into their feeding pouch, yes. they have two little gates that go around their abdomen that will pass that water out past the eggs and out. So several times a second, these good mothers are ventilating their eggs with fresh water from the lake. That's awesome. So they they have feeding currents that turn into maternal support currents on the inside of their body. Just remember, this is an animal that's a millimeter long, so they're good mothers. They're also marathon um, swimmers. Yeah, now they have to be. And uh, so um, they swim in terms of body lengths, the equivalent of 10 marathons a day, typically. Oh, my goodness. And so they can, um, uh, you know, there's a risk when you're out there and there's no trees to hide behind. Yes. In the lake. <laughs> Big time. And so what they, um, what they often do is they'll swim down a bit during the day to yes. avoid being eaten by fish. Yes. And they'll swim up at night and, uh, and then filter feed uh, algae out of the water column at night. So they're constantly balancing stressors, you know, yeah. where, where are the predators? Yeah. Um, some of the predators, like fish, the only way to avoid being eaten by fish is to be small and reproduce quickly. Yes. But uh, there are, the more common predators are actually little animals that are about a centimeter long, and there's four or five different ones. They have cute names, phantom midges, glass worms. <laughs> There are jellyfish, freshwater jellyfish. Yes. Um, there is an opossum shrimp. There are many little, there are mites. There are many animals that are called the macro invertebrates, big okay. invertebrate predators yes. that eat the Daphnia. And Daphnia have developed all kinds of specialized uh, mechanisms of dealing with those predators. And the neatest thing they do is um, uh, they produce a helmet. Mm that makes them look like a little Bavarian cavalryman um, uh, <clears throat> that changes the flow of water around their body. Yes. Um, and the most common predator they have is called a glass worm. Okay. Uh, it's the only insect member of the plankton. 
we have four species in Muskoka Lakes. The, okay. The Latin name is Chaobarus, but also called the phantom midge. The phantom midge is the other thing, yeah. Because it's about a centimeter long. Yeah. It's called phantom because it's completely transparent because yes. it eats daphnia, but it's eaten by fish. Gotcha. And so it only comes up at night and is a so-called ambush predator. It just hangs out in the water where it thinks daphnia will come. And if the daphnia swim by, it changes the flow path around the body. Yes. And the phantom midge detects the, the disturbances the in the path. water. Yeah. And so if it, if it produces a Bavarian cavalry helmet, it changes the flow path around the body and the phantom midge strikes and misses. Because it disorients them where like they, don't, they can't right. radar in, in That's a sense, right. right? They can't use their radar to track it. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. More like sonar. Under sonar the water. underwater, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. But that's exactly what it is. And uh, so anyway, they, they do lots of neat things, these, yeah. uh, these Daphnia. That's cool. So, but let's talk about their kind of role in our legs for oh, a little wait. bit. Almost, wait, hold that thought. Hold that thought. I just looked at our time. We got to take a quick break for our uh, sponsors here at the Bay 88.7 FM. You're listening to The Chris O Show with uh, my very special guest, Dr. Norman Yan. And we will be right back after this quick little commercial break. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. And welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Chris O Show on 88.7 FM, The Bay. And uh, this is Chris O, obviously, and my very special guest, Dr. Norman Ann. We're talking about Daphnia. We just went through, uh, in our first half of our show, um, what Daphnia are, um, how they operate, how they're good mothers, <laughs> and uh, how they uh, protect themselves against predators, and uh, how they... Uh, how they just basically live in our, our, our lakes and what they do. So um, the second part of our show, we'll discuss about their importance to our lakes, to keeping them healthy, and why we should find them a lot more important than we probably think for a microscopic creature. So Dr. Yan, please go ahead. A pleasure to be back with you, Chris. <laughs> so what you first heard about is a bit of the biology and how neat it is that there are water fleas called Daphnia that no one thinks anything about. Yes. Uh, Canadians, by the way, are one of the uh, group of, of countrymen in the world that actually look after Daphnia because we have lots of legs. Yes. So um, what what do they do for our legs and what can go wrong and then how can we prevent it? So what they do in our legs is they, they sit in the middle of the food web between algae mm -hmm. and, and the higher levels of the food web. And I've often said that we'd be blind, stupid, hungry, and deaf, you know, without... Uh, algae, yes, because and the lipids in our brain eventually come from the omega three fatty acids that eventually come from the water. They're very preserved. Initially, come from the water. Um, we'd be stupid because our brains don't work well without those omega three fatty acids. We'd be blind because the visual pigments in our eyes are actually omega three fatty acids that way back when came from the water, and it's the same. Uh, visual pigments that amoeba have that, gotcha. you know, that we have yes. in our eyes. So these are very, very ancient, valuable things that we've inherited from our evolutionary tree. So Daphnia, um, we have six or eight species in our legs. They keep our legs clean. Yep. Um, they feed uh, higher levels of the food web, including fish. They are edible. I have had Daphnia soups. <laughs> um, it's, nice. They've been on the space station. 
<clears throat> oh, really? They've been on the space station because they're one of the food sources that's being considered for the Mars expedition. Interesting. That they'll have algae there, and then you can have these resting eggs of Daphnia that are completely dry. Yeah. Just keep them in an envelope in a drawer, and when you get to Mars... <clears throat> and you figure out where to get water and you've got algae growing. You open the envelope, sprinkle the resting eggs into the water and you've got shrimp bisque. That, uh, are you serious? I am. I'm, I'm being serious. They have been taken to the space station to see how they respond to being in, space. in yeah. space. So there is a famous Daphnia resting egg biologist in Russia who got them to do that and took these resting eggs to space. And one of my great uh, unfortunate realities is that I didn't get any of them when they came back. And because um, there's a few people that have some of their resting eggs that have been to space and amulets and oh, things like that. Oh, wonderful. Would have been wonderful to do that. No, that's that's serious. No, so, that's great. That's cool. I mean, that would be fun to have that, like, you know, like have a little amulet with like actual creatures that, that have, have been, been to space. space and that come would be back. really cool. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Let's take you back to how Daphne can help us, uh, did help us originally uh, assess the state of our environment. We know they're important, but they can also help us monitor and assess the state of the environment and diagnose things when they go wrong. Yeah. So think back 40 years, Chris, Okay. Uh, to the, the heyday of acid rain work in the 70s. One of the first abs absolute proofs that the Canadian government had to say that we had an acid rain problem was what happened to one species of Daphnia in Muskoka Lakes. It's a species called Daphnia mendoti, okay. one of our most common species, named after Lake Mendota, okay. where it was first described in the U.S. Um, and we were noticing in surveys of hundreds of lakes um, around Ontario that Daphnia mendoti was disappearing in lakes that had pH levels just under six. Um, that's just a correlation. But then we brought Daphnia into the laboratory in Dorset here in Muskoka. Yeah. And we're able to show that when you drop the pH of the water they're in to just below six, they die. So oh, this was the okay. first example where we had a, a field correlation mm -hmm. that was verified by um, laboratory um, analyses that proved that it wasn't just a correlation, it was causal. And that work was taken by the Canadian government to Washington in the early 70s is one of the first examples that the acid rain problem was real. And the reason we were able to do that was because Daphnia is so easy to culture in the laboratory. Okay. There are more papers published on Daphnia in total than on, if you added up all the papers on lions, tigers, and bears, it's less published scientific papers than on Daphnia. There are over something like 15,000 published papers on That's Daphnia. That's tremendous. Because it's such a cool animal to work with. It's easy to work with. It's important in food webs. And it's kind of a sentinel species, um, if you think of canaries in the coal mine, you know. Yes. So um, jump ahead 30 years, if I can do that now. Um, <laughs> Fast forward. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> science has progressed in the kinds of information we can get from sentinel species like Daphnia. Here's the problem with pollution in the world today. Well, in one sentence. Uh, in one sentence, the problem is that we release tens of thousands of chemicals into the environment every year. Yeah. Um, and then there are tens of thousands, if not millions, of potential combinations of those chemicals. Yes. 
And if you just start thinking, it's not just industry, it's pharmaceuticals, it's hospital waste, it's stuff coming in from the atmosphere, it's cosmetics, it's hormones. Yeah. Um, uh, even just the medicines that we take are not engineered to be entirely absorbed by our bodies. Not at all, no. They're actually engineered often so that they're absorbed in a particular part of the digestive tract. Yes. And then a certain fraction of them, maybe as much as half, is uh, is released to the environment in our in our waste. Okay. And um, so there's you know a huge amount of medical waste in the in in, in the environment. We don't have a good handle uh, for each of these tens of thousands of chemicals of what a safe level in the environment is. Nor do we have any idea of how that safe level varies from place to place and depending on and time to time, depending on how that changes. Yes. One very simple example is chloride from road salt. Okay. Much simpler than any of these um, medical compounds I'm talking about. The current, uh, just as an example, the, the current federal guideline for chloride is 120 milligrams per liter. But we know from Muskoka Lakes, it should be 10 times lower. Gotcha. In soft water and nutrient-poor water, Daphnia can't take chloride levels at the current national standard. So just one example. Yes. So what the latest work on uh, that we're doing on Daphnia, and we could talk about this more in the future, yes. is that <clears throat> um, if you had a standard Daphnia, that you could expose to every different kind of water in the world. And we have <clears throat> colleagues in England have identified that standard Daphnia clone to use. There are two things you can do in Muskoka that would be remarkable. Okay. One is that you could use Muskoka Lake water <clears throat> to assess the standard genetic and metabolic response of Daphnia yes. that indicates health and use that as a standard around the world. Oh. <clears throat> so that's one option, because we've got a lot of healthy legs. Yes, we do. The second option is, and this is what our latest work with our colleagues at the University of Birmingham has been about, is to say, we don't know what chemicals are out there, but let's ask Daphnia if she is happy <laughs> and if she, with, with the environment that she's in. Yes. And if she's not happy, let's quantify that with thousands of genetic responses that can be extracted off one microscope slide. Gotcha. And then ask, we don't know what the chemicals are, but we know there's hundreds there. Yes. Which of those chemicals are the ones that most correlate with why Daphnia is unhappy based on what her genetics are is telling us? Gotcha. And so that's kind of the core idea of uh, moving Daphnia uh, it was always a good sentinel species when we knew what the problem in the environment was, like yes. acid rain 30 years ago or chloride today. Yes. But if we don't really know, and let's start by asking, are you happy, Daphnia? Yeah. Is this water good for you? And if this water is good for you, great. Because it's if good for the, everybody then. Yeah, yeah. If the, in fact, uh, Daphnia, these genetic signals of Daphnia are being used as a measure of human risk as well. Yeah, well, as, they should be. As part of what's called kind of a one health approach where veterinary medicine and ecotoxicology and human health can all come together yeah. using these common long-term inherited um, uh, features that all life has. Remember I said, for example, amoeba has the same yes. pigments to detect light as we have in our eye. Yes. That, that, commonality among all life 
uh, is something we can exploit using Daphnia to actually assess yeah. risks to people uh, That's in addition great. to our legs. That's wonderful. And then and that takes us to our time. <laughs> you timed that well. <laughs> you timed that well, Darwin. I didn't, I didn't mention the Friends of the Muskoka Watershed. I did at the beginning. Okay, good. But okay. So if you want to learn more about um, the Healthy Lakes or get involved, um, you can become a member of Friends of the Muskoka Watershed. Which is now a charity. Which is now a charity. Um, so become a member, donate. You can donate time or money because um, there are lots of projects where, we, yeah. where uh, Friends of the Muskoka Watershed needs um hands and people on the ground helping yeah. citizen scientists yeah. um just go to friends of muskoka watershed dot or no it's fotmw.org dot org and you can learn more there um if you need anything you can hit us up here at the bay 88.7 fm or just talk to chris o on the street i can give you a ton of information because i did work there for a short period of time and learned so much about the amazing work that they do so thank you everyone thank you dr yan my pleasure talk to you soon and thanks for listening